0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bridget Wallace, and today my guest is Dr. John D. Garris, um, extraordinary historian in Saint-Domingue, Haitian Revolution, Haitian Revolution, and Caribbean Studies. Today we are discussing his new work, A Secret Among the Blacks, Slave Resistance Before the Haitian Revolution. Um, put out 222 223 by Harvard University Press. Welcome, Dr. Garrigus. How are you today?
1: I'm good, Bridget. Thank you. I'm so, uh, so pleased to be able to chat about the book with you. And I'm pleased to have you.
0: So um, I'm just going to let you find out how did you get into your research interests, what interested you, what brought you into this, and then how did you begin to write this book? I'm just going to let you have at it.
1: Okay, well, it's a lot. To, a lot to cover. I, you know, I went to um, I went to graduate school because I was interested in French history and the French Revolution and the uh, preconditions of the French Revolution, and I was uh, lucky enough to have a uh, graduate mentor, uh, Bob Forster, Robert Forster, who was a French historian of the old regime, but who had realized that uh, there's a tremendous. Uh, I, I, the, the tremendous importance of the Haitian Revolution. And uh, Bob, late in his career, was making a switch into that, uh, for him, a new area. And uh, he asked me if I would like to uh, focus my research in that direction. And uh, so I said yes. And um, I kind of switched myself from being a, a European historian who's studying German as well as French to a, a Caribbean historian who. Uh, was able to work with Franklin Knight and a lot of the other people who were at Johns Hopkins University at that time. So that was a huge, uh, a huge advantage for me to, to go to the graduate school looking to be a Europeanist and then to realize how the Haitian Revolution had been at that time, well, still is, I think, uh, really understudied compared to its importance in world history.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. That's my interest. So. Um, I read your previous um, works, talk your plantation machine, your articles talking about free people of color um, and the dynamics in Haiti and the revolution. A Secret Among the Blacks, um, I find, really opens my eyes and opens new questions about the fact that there was slave resistance going on before the big evolution erupted. So, from I'm gonna let you pick up from that point exactly. How you got into this book? What pushed you to study slave resistance before the revolution?
1: Okay. Well, I mean, I think like a lot of people who get interested in the Haitian Revolution, we we want to know, you know, what caused it, and uh, we read C.L.R. James and we read these other uh, Carolyn Fick and these other amazing books. And uh, but then it's you know, it takes it's hard to. The archival sources for the Haitian Revolution, particularly for the point of view of enslaved rebels, it doesn't—they don't really just jump out at you. So I decided instead I would work on a, a different topic, which I thought was very important, that I think is important, and that is the free population of color in French Saint Domingue, which was as large as the population of uh, French colonists at the time. Although both were both groups were dwarfed by the size of the enslaved population. And so um, I got interested in what were the economic conditions that allowed a free population of color to exist. And I looked at yeah, like 10,000 economic contracts, and I came to the conclusion that there were important economic reasons, but also there was a kind of a major cultural shift within the French colonial world where the society uh, in Saint-Domingue became increasingly uh, more racist in a enlightened, quote unquote, you know, uh, pseudo-scientific way, as the French colonists were struggling with their own political identity within the Empire on the eve of the French Revolution and that people who were wealthy planners who might have been described by colonists as being, you know colonists or like a like a strange kind of American colonist were now increasingly described as people of African descent. Um, and they were increasingly described by what was an insulting term at the time, affranchi, which meant freedmen. because mm-hmm. these were people, uh, many of whom had never been had been born free and had never been enslaved. In fact, they were slaves. They were themselves enslavers. And so to be referred to as ex-slaves because of their African ancestry only was a, uh, you know, a real slap to them, so there were. It turned out to be a lot of documentation on that group, and um, and I, you know, I kind of still assumed that there was really not a lot of documentation on on slaves. Then when my friend uh, Trevor Bernard and I decided to write a book comparing uh, uh, colonization in French Saint Domingue and British Jamaica, and we began, and I realized that the uh, Tacky revolt, Tacky's revolt, yeah, has been a in. book on. That occurred at the same time as Machindal's revolt in San domingue and I began looking at that and that opened up the door to all the sources that make, uh, that, that underpin the stories in The Secret Among the Blacks. Um, I want to, before we get into
0: resistance and community building, I wanted to ask you about free people of color and the dynamic between them and the enslaved communities that you discuss in the book were there strong alliances between free people of color and the enslaved people and, and or free black people because I the demarcation line for free people of color is the fact that they don't just have don't want to be uh, attached to anything slavery nothing at all they just want to be uh, have a parent that has a African descendant and a white European father. That's it. That's how they construct their racial identity. Um, you mentioned a little bit in book when you talk about Vincent O'Shea and um Julianne Ramon, but how strong was their alliance during this time period that you look at between free people of color and enslaved um Africans. Yeah,
1: that's a really good question and it points out how uh how fragmented these groups are which we, you know, it's convenient for us as historians to kind of lump them together under these like big groups like enslaved people, but of course, enslaved people themselves were maybe born on the island but more likely born in Africa and then born in a wide variety of African places. Uh and then free people of color as you say uh was a category that included uh, people, uh, you know, biracial ancestry, European and African, uh, who were uh, who were free. Most of many many of them born into freedom, but others, you know, manumitted out of slavery. And then there were also people who were free Black people, like most famously Toussaint Louverture, who had no European ancestry, um, and who had worked their way out of slavery in various ways uh, that are still not clear to us. And these groups, I mean three, but maybe more than three, uh, had a lot of differences within the groups as well as among the different groups. Mm-hmm. So free blacks, of course, like Toussaint Louverture, um uh had been enslaved at one time and they clearly had a close identification with the enslaved population. Other uh, families were in many tight cases still enslaved. But free people of color, as I said, were many of them were enslavers. Uh even though their African ancestry was uh something that that colonists now did they themselves tried to tried to diminish it and tried to basically basically be white people uh Fine. if they were really wealthy but what happened when uh, when Vincent Auger, who was uh a man of probably one quarter African ancestry went to France and tried to uh uh claim civil rights under the French Revolution to Sort of the yeah. story, and he came back to San Domingue and uh, tried to become a political leader, and was brutally executed along with um, uh, several dozen of his uh, of his colleagues. When a man who was already so much a part of white colonial society was treated like a rebel slave by the colonists, that set a strong message to everybody. Uh, free blacks, enslaved people, and also biracial people that white colonists were never going to compromise on the issue of civil rights and, you know, uh, uh, political or civic identity, okay. which um, was something that OJ wanted, but maybe was we don't know, but I hypothesized that may have been something that many enslaved African people also looked forward to a day when, free black people could claim their own role in colonial society as just free colonists. Uh, And Auger's execution made it clear that was never going to happen.
0: Yeah, I I think I agree with you. Um, They felt defeated, I think, by his execution that what was happening in France with the Declaration of the Citizens of Rights Men, would never ever be applied to them. And I think enslaved people and free black people kind of rolled with that sentiment um, a little bit easier than free people of color, because I really believe free people of color felt that that was just a knife going through them because. Um, They wanted to identify their racial identity, not accepting of their African heritage, but being of a white French citizen. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what um, and I I kind of agree with your hypothesis. All right. So I wanted to start talking about this idea of what defines slave resistance. Um, I know you bring up Randy Brown's, um, definition of this limited posturing of slave resistance, um, in the book you talk about, um, that, you know, he kind of limits It's based on, um, whether it affects the production of the plantation. If whatever resistance levels that slaves do, does it affect production of this plantation and it has a limitation to it. I find, that I disagreed with that completely, you kind of disagree with it, but can you tell me how you are defining slave resistance, especially in light of your book?
1: Yeah, I I think I should say, just because I know most of our readers won't have had a chance to read the book, that uh, the book is really, unlike my other books and articles, this is really a book that is uh, kind of written for a general audience, as well as for like uh, specialists and historians like like you, and graduate students. So um, it's got a rich, and I think quite a deep archival base, and yet the book itself is a collection of, as you know, stories of Mm -hmm. people. So I didn't really start out to write a book about resistance. I set a book to write about the Machindal uh, poisoning case, and then I began to find amazing documents about individual people. And we don't really have, you know, much of an image of individual people oftentimes in, in any slave society because we just tend to think about the whole mass of hundreds of thousands of people or millions who were enslaved. And so this book uh I think lends itself to talking about what resistance is, but it and even though resistance is in the title, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't uh it doesn't present itself as a study of resistance, but more of a a study of these individual cases. And then at the end, I was able to sort of see how all of these individuals um, are actually all living within 10, 15 miles of the place where the Haitian Revolution broke out. And uh, I'm also able to be quite specific about that particular place in uh, sort of advancing the work of of other historians like Carolyn Fick and David Gagas a little bit. And so I do want to make sure readers know that it's really a book that's designed for people to understand the variety of human conditions and uh, uh, reactions that people had uh, to uh, being enslaved in San Domain. So that said, there's no single overarching ideology of resistance that scholars have tried to look for because the Haitian Revolution was so successful. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's a series of of actions by uh, individual people actions that are illuminated because they got caught up in this poison hysteria among the, the colonists, and they were interviewed and tortured and interrogated, and colonists tried to use their words to as evidence of a poisoning uh, conspiracy, which I feel um, readers of the book will agree with me that uh, there's... No, um, there's no evidence that that there was such a conspiracy. And in fact, the cause was something completely different that I de- identify in the book and we can talk about uh, okay. here. So it's a kind of an environmental crisis that is in one part a disease crisis and on the other hand, a political crisis in that enslaved people are the victims of this uh, environmental crisis. They're being killed by a disease, actually a disease introduced from France. Right. <laughs> And they're also being blamed for killing each other uh, using the poison uh, that is, in fact, killing them. So they're kind of caught uh, in, in these, you know, from these two directions. And different people have to resist to survive because they're under such terrible threats. And so they resist in very many different ways. They resist using spirituality. They resist trying to use the French legal system, which is. Does it work? But I mean, we can see that they understood that the letter of the law, in fact, was supposed to protect them or alleged to protect them, even though no one would would uh, respect that, that they um, use labor actions, what we would call strikes. Right. Um, some historians we call marinage, but I, I think these are much more specifically you know, aimed at uh, slowing down the the work process on the plantation. So uh, these are just some of the some of the ways that they responded. So I don't, I, I see a lot of resistance happening, but it's all um, it's it, there's a wide variety, just like there's a wide variety of people and situations, uh, very different situations and very different reactions uh, to that.
0: Yeah, um, I found um, your method of telling the stories of the different healers um kind of illuminated um a lot of the um dynamics and the fear what happens when fear takes a hold of a society especially when understanding of the other goes out the window we're just going to buy what we know and this is what we call like for example when you talk about the word poison in Africa, it was a different terminology versus what the French doctors call poisoning um in it. I want to start with your character Medor because I think he was just about the I think he was more interesting than Mathe I, agree, I, agree. <laughs> I think he was more interesting because I think he literally he had the secret. He mm-hmm. he was the secret keeper. He had the secret. So it was two. It was a couple of things. First, before I get into him, why did you put a lot of emphasis on making sure that the reader, even I, as a graduate student, and um, I know um, my brother-in-law, I ordered it for him because he he's ex-military to terrain the typology that you talked about you made that really, really important. It's like every story that you told, you made sure, like when you talk about Soufery, La Plange, um, when you talk about the Northern Providence, uh, when you talk about the connections between the mountains that you described with the coffee plantations, how they were mountainous in the soil. Why was that so important for you in, in
1: telling this story? Well, yeah, thank you for noticing that because it really is important for two reasons, I guess. I mean, one, I'm really, very really inspired by, uh, vincent brown's recent book uh tacky's revolt because one of the things that he did and i realized that i could do also uh is even though we don't have the words written down by enslaved people we can see by where they are in the landscape we can see the suggestion of communities and the suggestion that events like the haitian revolution mm-hmm. were not it was not an accident that all these acts of resistance happened within you know, or five or maybe ten miles of each other. So right. even though we don't have any record of oh there was a community of people here, we can see by just the fact of them being on the map so close together for years, and the fact that Machindal, uh was you know lived in and uh, lived and was arrested again just like five miles from where the Haitian Revolution broke out thirty years later, right. can see some sort of suggestion that the people kept his memory alive. Um, and so I thought that was really important just as a, a kind of a source, like a way of using the information uh, from the maps to, to tell us about uh, things that aren't in the, in the writing. And then also I think, uh, yeah, I've for a long time wanted to tell, wanted to write about the environmental history of Saint-Domingue because the environmental history of Haiti is so important to that country, the problems that they have. Uh, with erosion and uh, declining agricultural productivity, many of those have their roots in the colonial period and in the kind of voracious attitude that the French colonists had about just using up all the resources to produce profits, kind of in a, from a short-term perspective. And of course, the enslaved people were themselves being used up that way, but then they were also the ones living in this environment that had been so you know, it was being chewed up, deforested, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of animals being brought into the country, worked to death, uh, and then more animals being brought in. So creating a kind of a terrible disease environment potentially. There are a whole host of environmental aspects that uh, other scholars have pointed out, but I try to bring them together here uh, because I think that they had a big impact on enslaved people's lives. And so all sorts of all sorts of scholars, uh, Brown, but Vincent Brown is one, uh, have looked at the kind of the spatial, geography, the spatial history of uh, resistance. So that was, I think, a really important part of the story.
0: Yeah, um, Walter Rocker, who I was telling you about the other day, he did the same type of study. He looked at New York, uh, slave resistance in New York, in the same time frame, and he talked. He used the geography of New York in order to tell that story because the environment, it seems like we seem to neglect what's going on and where the slaves are really working and how it affects um, what they do. Um, So getting back to Medor, tell me what what you found so fascinated by him. It was the secret, but what I also found is his journey to protect himself. And in that journey to protect himself, the way that he, even though he was being interrogated, he seemed to have control over the interrogators when he would call out and have them come back to him earlier than what they were coming in. When he would try to figure out what information or what person he needed to tell on in order to distract them from his case. It seems like he, he was it's like this idea: enslaved people are fighting for choice. They're fighting for wanting to have control over their life. And what I, when I was looking at the interrogations with his interrogation and the Psalms, her interrogation, especially when she was able to get herself off of the burning stick, the burning pyre, is like they were not just fighting for not to be tortured, but they were fighting to have this idea that I have to have some type of control over my life, something that has been taken away from me. And in this devastating, horrific circumstance, is there a way, a window that I can do to find control? So um, let's talk about Medor because he started
1: it. And the, and then we can keep keep going. Right. Yeah. Medora is kind of the, he is the key to the whole book in a way. I mean, the title comes or uh, comes from him, um, and the the uh, the existence of communities and African ways of thinking about slavery and freedom uh, that I found that I interpret out of his story kind of gave me the keys to go back and look at other cases that other historians had already looked at and interpret them in a new way. Uh, because Medor made me realize that there were there were African people thinking uh about their lives in saint um in a way that colonists would uh either not see or never recognize and that's so Medor was arrested uh because this terrible disease which was a uh, European anthrax Rashid. through the colony and at the same time as he was, uh, actively working in medicine uh, uh, to, uh, I hypothesize, to help people on the on the plantation and people and animals, but rather than curing them as he had probably hoped, they died. And so he blamed the men who had made the medicines for him, who were other Africans from his same ethnicity. But he himself got drawn into this uh, long interrogation uh, in an isolated region of San domingue and in that interrogation to, in essence, to save himself, uh, he begins to tell the stories that he's kept hidden for 20 years in his household, where he was the valet to a, a French uh, surgeon who uh, turned to coffee planning. Right. And so Menor tells stories of a household, how the enslaved people in the household where he worked had done their best for decades to try to manipulate the um, the uh, their uh, enslavers to get freedom using different medicines and powders and other things which were all referred to lumped under the phrase uh, poison or poison in English and those were a word poison was a word that uh, you know has had many different meanings in different African societies uh, as you said from it could be medicine it could be a dangerous chemical it could be a spiritual force and interestingly enough in france also up to the 1600s and early 1700s in french culture as well poison was um, was considered it was a word that was applied to many different kinds of dangerous substances including like witches were said to be poisoners when they used communion wafers or holy things to do upright holy acts we didn't consider poison today we might consider it witchcraft or something right so in French and in different African cultures, the word poison was in flux. But Medour had the misfortune of being enslaved by a man who was, a, as I said, a surgeon. And so that surgeon understood the word poison in its new French meaning, which was a dangerous and deadly chemical. And so uh, uh, so Medour's, uh healing attempts were uh, were, uh uh, described by his interrogators as uh, murder attempts. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's where having studied San Domingue for a long time helped me because I, Colin has said that these slave poisoners wanted to kill their masters to get freedom. Right. Wow. And it's true that Medor did want to get freedom. But if you've looked at many missions, which are, you know, freedom papers of people, mm-hmm. you realize in San Domingue, anyway, it doesn't help you if your master dies because it's a very complicated process to get your freedom. So your master has to really want, he, has, he or she has to want you to be free because they have to sign up and do a lot of paperwork and they have to pay taxes on it. And once the master dies, uh, however, you know, whether you kill him or, or just get sick, The person who now becomes your new owner, that person doesn't know you, doesn't care about you, and you now become just more property for them. So what Medor was really doing with his medicines, which he was giving to his master, the quote unquote poisons, was he was, I believe, he was doing what slaves in Brazil and other places that we know about were doing, which is trying to use African-style medicines to create stronger bonds of affection with his master, or maybe to weaken his master's mind, or like the selfishness, or whatever it was that he saw was broken in his master, and he would kind of heal that. And then he could get his master to sort of see him fully as a human being and they could work together on freedom. So um, so yeah, Medor believed throughout that he could manipulate his his master, including by telling these stories that he that he told. But of course the colonists don't want to hear that. They want to see the Africans as, uh, you know, uh, as as killers. Uh, and so the secret that Medor reveals is that not only is he giving medicines to his enslaver to try to get freedom early, but that there's a whole group of people that he that Medor knew when the he lived in the city of Cap Francais, a group of people who were free blacks but had come as slaves. Who had already used these medicines and had already gotten their freedom and that those people secretly were helping other enslaved people like Midor use that technology with the idea of increasing the population of free black people. This is what Midor uh, describes with the understanding that one day there would be enough free black people that uh, they could uh, he says "fair face, so That is confront the oh, whites. Uh-huh. So to me, this is this is kind of a big, a huge breakthrough because I saw Medor and his friends thinking politically. Uh-huh. What white people always said was that it was all about violence and revenge and bloodlust and these terrible kind of racist stereotypes of, of you know, African savagery that excused white behavior. And instead, Medor, Medor's confession suggests that now that. These some of these people were thinking politically they were thinking over a long period of time they were thinking about negotiation maybe they were gonna do away with slavery we don't know i mean many of them came from societies in africa where there was a kind of slavery so
0: like right the west what central africa is slavery existed the congo slavery existed yeah I, i i had that same question um thought process too um because I was thinking when I read that he were wanting to make the master um, weak. And my thought process was he, they were giving these masters poison to make them more make them weak so that they would have to be dependent on the slave to take care of that. Mm-hmm. And in that position of taking care of somebody, you're able to demonstrate I'm this person. I'm not this person that was bought over shackled from a boat from a country across the Atlantic Ocean. I'm this person, you're not feeling well, I can take care of you. Um, I think that was Psalms premise too, of poisoning her master. Um, it was this idea that they were looking for a space in which to exhibit who they were, not what the, not what was ascribed to them, but who they were. That was the use of poisoning. And I like the fact that you use the word negotiation um, by threat of violence. And I think that the negotiation by the threat of violence is what escalated white fear um, in, in Saint-Domingue. Um, you know, white supremacy, white fear, anytime um, someone other than themselves, okay, we're going to negotiate, but yes, we're going to still have this strength on our side of us. And then, you know, it just it just escalates out. Well, the one of the problems that I'm having with this story, just with the story in general, is they yearned, they fought, well, they made intentionally built community. They built these communities. Um, when um, Assam, and I like her too, when Assam um, was ch- being in the hospital, um, hospital to there, and was trying to get medicine and then um, she was had this um I would say naivete trust mm-hmm. um the, the Dola doctor had died and she went to Jean and somebody she didn't know and she trusted him to get the medicines and everything and even with Madur they went to um, they went to Gawa and Do he went to the different healers and people who had the powders and stuff and they trusted people. And they built communities. and you know, we had the resistance communities one one in main mission. you know, Carbone wasn't to buy his daughter's freedom and was being blocked from doing that. So they built these communities. But when they got in front of these interrogators, seems like the community fell away. Well, he, I mean, can you help me? <laughs> yeah, I you know, I understand that we're fighting not to be killed and tortured, but but Macindale, he and he even told he didn't told, who had the herbs? He just told a few names. He didn't get, he just a few names, but it was this idea that you're building community, but again, when you're faced with the enemy, then your community breaks. And uh, can you help me understand that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I wrestle with this too, because as much, as grateful as I am to Medor's, you know, bravery in telling these stories, uh, also, I mean, he's betraying his community as you see him, but and and Assam, who I think, is accused completely unjustly. I mean, she also hands over a lot of names, and in kind of that way, feeds the uh, colonial hysteria, and that seems to maybe save right. her a while. But the thing that I thought, when I looked closely at it, at at uh, Medor, I mean, uh, uh, yes, Medor betrayed a lot of communities, and then. His friend Venus and his uh, friend uh, Del Wah, they were burned at the stake because of what he said. Right. And yet Venus, venus according to one of the white witnesses, Venus would not reveal anything. No. And I would he not reveal say. anything. And so right. the North's community had done this amazing thing. As you said, Andre Carbon, who was a, a biracial uh, man living on the edge of slavery, uh, had tried to buy his daughter freedom, couldn't do it, the whites wouldn't sell. And so... Uh, Venus and Medor had kidnapped her. You know, they kidnapped her. They released her. They they, they right. helped her escape, and she stayed free. Yeah. So Andre Carval was arrested, and they tried to pin so the charges on him, and he was free. So that means that there was a whole community of people who were hunted down, uh, and either who either escaped or who died, like Venus, without ever revealing where whatever happened to, Mer, to Mary to the the girl. Right. Uh, the sliding sleep bureau. So, so yeah, we, because of Medora and Assam, who did kind of try to betray communities to save themselves, uh, we 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 know about the communities, but then there's lots of evidence that other people refused to do that and went to their deaths. So there's a mixture. If everybody had been silent, we wouldn't even know about the heroism of, of a few people. So, yeah, it's a mixed bag. Uh, and, I I mean, Medor is just in this terrible position, and I feel, you know, just on a personal level, like I, I, I feel like he made the wrong decision uh, to, re- to, to you know, reveal all his friends. But as a historian, I mean, we have to have these documents, and I'm glad that I'm glad that Mary Jean escaped, and I'm glad that her father, you know, will yeah, suffered too. So there are, some, there are some happy sides here.
0: Yeah, you get caught up in the story. Yeah. And, and I was glad. Yeah. Cause, um, you really get caught up. Um, so let's talk about Mock and doll Why did you pick, he has a lot of myths around him. I remember as a child, uh, seeing, um, pictures of him jumping out of the fire. Um, I remember, um, so I'm from the South and, um, I'm, very much a part of African spirituality and you know we've got just part of my ancestry and they have talked about McIndall how he jumped out and how his um ghost is all placed over um the Caribbean um region and everything so I wanted to know how did you why McIndall why this myth and what is it telling us?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Machindal is the the whole book started with Machindal and and then it wound up in the Haitian Revolution kind of, uh, I don't want to say accidentally, but I didn't really want to tie Machindal to the Haitian Revolution. It just showed up. Um, so uh, I guess two things. I mean, one thing there's, as you know, as a student of all this, there's, a, there's French colonists had long maintained that enslaved people in Santa Domingue were pretty happy and content and that yes. masters were quote unquote good masters and all this stuff yeah uh, and, uh, and one of the things I think I can reveal in the book was how just this was just complete fabrication by them mm-hmm. like, there's one man uh you know I quote in the, at the in the conclusion Pierre Moussout, uh oh. whose plantation rose up in rebellion he said how could we have known that these men of course they're women, were had such resolve and had planned well, Massoud. I mean, the evidence in the book shows Massoud had faced a strike by twenty-four men who risked, and maybe women too. Who, anyway, people who risked everything to do, uh, try to get better conditions on the plantation. When he said, "How could we have known?" Of course, he knew. He had faced many occasions of resistance, and so yeah, they know. It's just a myth, and he's not the only one to say this. This was part of the French colonial. Uh, myth and historians relying on those colonial sources had repeated that, so that even someone like C.L.R. James, who of course is from Trinidad and right. was very much, you know, in favor of uh, the Haitian Revolution, favor of Makandal was forced to say, based on his reading, that enslaved people in San Domingue were largely passive and that there was no rebellion. That's what he said. That's what he said. I have read that book back and forth. Mm-hmm. So Machindal is like, he's the exception of, well, he's the one rebel. But then they started looking at that story and thinking, well, yeah, okay, he's a rebel and everything, but then, then you look at the official documents of like who they think died in the Machindal Rebellion, and most of those people, like 90% of them, are enslaved black people. Mm-hmm. Like six to 7,000 black people died of poisoning. Uh, so... To me, that's. I thought that's just really straight. What kind of a rebellion is that? What is to call Is he a sociopath or is he a Marxist? Is he trying to destroy the means of production, which means killing other enslaved people? That didn't sound. That didn't no. sound right to me. So then I started to look, and I, you know, I came up with different theories as to what was killing those people, and mm-hmm. I finally think I found the answer. Uh, in this book, which was anthrax, anthrax, yeah, uh, which kills people within 24 hours, kills yeah. animals, which were they were the ones who were really dying, and it was not well understood until the 1770s. And then colonists very quickly realized, oh, we have a big anthrax problem here. And they totally they write about it in a lot of detail, but they never go back 20 years earlier and show that when Mackendall, when Mackendall was alive, yeah, they also still had an anthrax problem then and. Right, that idea that so it's an idea. Mackendal's uh, poison conspiracy was attractive to to planters because it made him into a villain and maybe even a madman. And then later in the twentieth century, when African American historians and Afro Caribbean historians began looking at the Haitian Revolution from a different pro Black perspective, mm-hmm. they also saw Mackendal uh, as a poisoner. But now they saw him as a hero. Uh, which I do think he is a hero, but not for, because of the poison. Uh, so that's, I think, an example of how these colonial myths, you know, uh, they have multiple lives. Mm. So they have an anti Black life, you could say, in the colonial period. And then when Black scholars try to see things from a different perspective, all they have to rely on, in this case, is that colonial myth. They flipped it inside out. Mm. Uh, Yeah, it's still, to me, not a good explanation of what was happening. No,
0: um, I think one of the things that trips up um, historians is the idea of um, African customs, spirituality, culture can transcend. The, pass- the Middle Voyage passage is like it's always been this idea that once you put an African slave on a ship, shack him down, people on the ship for days on days to barely feed him. Once he gets to his destination, everything is lost, including his mind. Everything that's inside of him is lost, including his mind. Um, Lorena Walsh is a big proponent of seasoning that Africans were seasoned when they came over. And I have all, and I, one of my fights is that is just not true. It is not true. And I think what the doll does for me and the way you write it is the way they to ch- ch- talk about African spirituality through him mm-hmm. is the way that, um, what the, nin- the means, um, mm-hmm. the deep meaning of the maniska, and the fact that, um, the African, They had their spirituality, but yet when they came to the new land and you put it, when they came to the new land and they used symbols, religious symbols that they saw to create something new to able to survive and succeed in this new land that they were in. That's what you do. You kind of tie and you kind of push back that Africans were not a blank blank slate when they came over, that they still had their heart and they still had their mind, even and you just said it, when white colonists failed to think that Africans could think politically, could strategically could think politically, um, what they wanted. They didn't want, I didn't think they wanted violence. I agree with you. They wanted to be able to have a voice. They wanted to be able to have a political voice and not go back to the fact that they just wanted choice. They wanted their choice back again. So, um, um, so how important is the idea of how the nations of West Central Africa and the Congo came together to form these communities and thereby establishing the regional networks that supported, that were ready and in place when the Haitian Revolution broke out?
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's really important. I mean, there are, you know, the, the enslaved population in Sandamang is very, very diverse. So there are people from West Central Africa, which colonists just called the Congo, and we would see that as the Congo River Basin and Angola, neighboring countries in that part of Africa. And then also from an earlier era, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people from uh, Western Africa um, and the you know, modern day countries of uh Ghana and Togo and Benin and Nigeria and all that, the very large and uh, diverse area, and that diversity and that those cultural identities, you know, survive for many many people and for for others or maybe reconstituted as Walter Rucker talks about, like you realizing that um, there's a community of people from a, the same general part of Africa and sort of reconstituting in that way. You do see, for example, Medor and his Mandora is working with people getting medicines from men who who speak, who speak the same African language that he does, right. the West African uh, language, and so uh, based on their names, and so there's kind of a clustering of people sharing technologies or ideas or you know spiritualities uh, to to do something about slavery. And then Makinall seems to come from a very different uh, uh, tradition, you know, even though they they that burn alive as a poisoner, they can never show in any way that he ever created anything that a person would put in the, her mouth or rub eyes. Light like would be a poison. Instead, Mackendal reveals his secrets, which is he makes these uh, inkisi, which are uh, power objects that people in a vast area in West Central Africa regard as uh, holding the bodies, holding the the. The souls of the the dead, and uh this is the the basis of the Palo, the various Palo religions in and and uh, Cuba, oh, for example, and uh, part of Haitian Vodou as well. And so these kisi, that's what Mackandal is making. Their colonists call them charms. I think an anthropologists would call them a power object. Power object, yeah. They've got a spirit. they inside them. They need to be fed. They need to be created carefully using various ritual elements, and then they come alive, they have a name, and they protect the person carrying it, but they also help that person see the future because they're part of the underworld, mm-hmm. can know things that humans can't know, including uh, who the poisoner is. This is one, one, one of Machin' dolls you know, uh his maybe his wife, uh Brigitte. Brigitte <laughs> she makes them also. They help you see who, who stole the animal or who, you know, poisoned somebody. This suggests to me that Rockabell wasn't making poisons. He was helping people protect themselves against the mysterious <laughs> poison. <laughs> because white people and black people were all terrorized by this these mysterious deaths as anybody would be. And they all were looking for some kind of explanation for something that would take a healthy person and in 24 hours that person would be dead with very few you know, external symptoms. So it's it seemed like a poison or a curse or a god struck them down or something. So Machindal, I say, was like many of the people, was building community to help folks protect themselves against all the evils and all the sources of harm. That could come to come their way.
0: Did they take did they take his did they take the so the his descendants? Did they take that into the revolution? Did you see aspects where some of the enslaved people had those um packets tied to their thighs or carried them around their necks? Did they take them into the revolution?
1: Yeah, you know, of course, the the, the slave trade is just bringing you. In. As you know, like tens of thousands of enslaved people everywhere. So it's hard to know, uh, you know, the different African cultural uh, elements, spiritual elements that we see during the revolutionary fighting is that, how much of that is from Mackandal's time, which was 30, 40 years before the revolutionary battles, or how much of it is coming in, you know, fresh. But I do think it's safe to say that Mackandal is one of the people, one of the pioneers of Congo spirituality. In Haiti, I mean, at least in terms of the record, we now uh, know quite a bit because of his interrogation record about the techniques he was using, and how different that was from the techniques that other people like Medora were using. And so we can see there was a real, a real just this diversity of of African-inspired attempts to uh, to this, to end the suffering and to find protection and healing. And um, and uh, so yeah, Mackandal is definitely a pioneer, and in that way, he's one of the founding fathers of Haitian culture. Although, of course, it's going to continue to evolve after he's yeah. executed.
0: Yeah, because and and most importantly, he incorporated the crucifix, which was a French Catholic symbol um, mm-hmm. of spirituality. Um, and and that that's what they got him was um sacrilege. Um, But it was this idea that you can go to a new land and incorporate something from another culture to build something stronger to, as you say, protect um, people from a poison that was just ravaging a colony as it was ravaging a colony. Um, Before um, this comes to a close, I want you to talk about your engagement with the archives. I think that's, that's the biggest conundrum. Me, as a graduate student, as a story space, especially those of us who study Haitian revolution, because the archives um, shut the closed silence, the marginalized voice. And um, even you said you was only six interrogate five or six interrogation records that you found that you were able to build this story. So can you talk about how you engage with the archives, your process of going through this and finding these voices that so desperately need to be heard?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, it really starts with um, with uh, uh, trying to understand the Mackandal story, and then uh, I, the wonderful book that Carolyn Fick wrote, uh, um, uh, and then published in the '90s, really, you know, has an incredible. I think it's the second chapter tells the story of Mackandal from a Haitian kind of uh, traditional perspective of Mackandal as a poisoner and as a maroon, and she talks about Midor and Assam and other people. And it was so intriguing to me. I thought I've, I need to look at those documents. And then when I began to read them, I thought, well, I mean, I, Carolyn's done amazing work, but I'm I don't really agree with her interpretation of it. Uh, and so, uh, uh, in particular, I think uh, because the idea of Macdonald the poisoner was so appealing to so many different groups on the opposite sides of the political spectrum over time, people. Kind of, with the exception of Carolyn, you know, didn't really go to the doc. Go didn't go to look at the archive, and didn't try to read this. It's a long memorandum written by the judge who fr- basically framed Mackendal and had him executed. Oh, Cortan. Cortan. Cortan, you know, Cortan was desperate to prove that Mackendal was a poisoner. He Cortan was going to hopefully in his mind he was going to get a get a permanent position mm-hmm. and something with the judge mm-hmm. if he could do this. And yet, in spite of all the pressure on him to deliver the goods of a you know a, a poison confession he couldn't do it. as you said, it, the worst thing he could show about Mackendal was a there was a crucifix in these packets which just seemed like sacrilege that was a burning of fats and then B Mackendal created a community that was really lo- incredibly loyal to him, Bye. seen as dangerous And so I thought wow if Kurt Korte can't he can't show this, so what is he showing? And then I began to research the, the Nkisi. Uh, and then I also began looking for other sources of of uh, something that might be killing people. And then I saw the Medor document uh, and his idea that uh, this there was this secret where people were sharing medicines. And I began, I, I guess it just, it comes from uh, realizing that the stories we tell about the documents, sometimes obscure how the documents themselves, uh what the documents themselves really say. Okay. okay, Like people might cite Cortez interrogation memorandum, but never read it, or at least not read it very carefully. And once they read it, they realize oh, this is nothing and this is about poison at all. And then when they look at Medora, and particularly when they find these people on the map, then also you can realize, you know, Medor and Mackandal live like 40 miles away. It's very difficult. They probably had no connection at all. People have described Medor as a follower of Mackandal, but that seems very unlikely. Yeah. So uh, the other thing is, and this is what's so difficult for us, and I, I hope I did a good job, but maybe, you know, uh, is to try to use the historical knowledge that we have to imagine the scene from the point of view of the enslaved person. So for colonists, colonists always said that oh, manumission is a selfish thing that people do. You know, they just want freedom for themselves, and they basically screw everybody else. I'm getting out of slavery if I can do it, and that makes kind of sense, I guess, to us as free people. And yet, when I saw what um, what Medor was saying, which was that a bunch of us are working together, and we understand that each the freedom of each person will change. The lives of all their friends who are still in slavery and make a bigger population. I thought, well, that's a very different way of thinking about manumission from the colonial, you know, story. Maybe it's a more of an African way of understanding that. Yes, people are enslaved, but then they can get free, and maybe they can even, in an African society, they can rise in society and have right Mm positions of respect. Of course, that's not possible in a racist society. Right, Saint Domingue and Medor and Toussaint, and everybody understood that, but they thought maybe we can force the white people to negotiate with us. My hypothesis is that maybe they they hope to do away with at least the racial aspect. Um, but yeah. that, that's just that's just my hypothesis. But I do think seeing manumission as a political act for a community rather than a selfish act of a one person or a, or a family is a good example of how it. Sometimes it's you can we can flip the story and maybe see things in a different way from right. what could be. I'm hoping it's the African, the the African perspective that Vedor had. Though we know we we never know for sure,
0: but it it does make sense because African perspective kinship is at the heart of their culture. Right, kinship is at the heart of their culture. So when I read it and thought about it. I said it made sense to me because I know at the heart of African culture is kinship. So what I'm can accomplish for myself, I'm going to accomplish for my family. I'm going to accomplish for my community. I'm going to accomplish for my society. So that that's that's just part of who an African person is because that that idea of kinship take the hand of your neighbor and bring them with you. So we can see it as a political maneuver, but I also see it as a cultural um aspect because I understand um that culture that they um have. Um but um it is an amazing book. It it opens it really changes our perspective to the fact especially when you talk about political strategy you don't think of resistance communities being in the space of politics being in the space of um, looking ahead looking beyond um the now and looking into the future um, looking for what their children will face or what they can what they can do and I would v- venture, that an economic space could be found, um, in this story, um, as well, um, they're looking, but it's an amazing book. It really opened my eyes, um, to the fact that you, you really have succeeded for me and, um, affirming that when Africans were moved to these new lands, that they did bring who they were from their homeland. They actually, they really did bring who they were from their homeland. I'm so glad that you join me today. Don't leave. I'm so glad that you are joining you join me today. Your book is a secret among the black slave resistance before the Haitian Revolution. Um, this Dr. John Garrigus, and this is the New Books Network French Channel. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye.
1: Thanks very much, Bridget.